Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. This is Album Clash. Hi, my name is Gucci Mane. I'm addicted to everything. Ich bin ein Berliner. <laughs> you are a cream donut. Indeed. Something I've always thought about you. <laughs> Hiya, Kev. How are you doing? I'm all good. How about yourself? Yeah, not bad. Uh, still just got back off holiday, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, you, a whole week for you to re- recover from that holiday. I mean, what were you doing? <laughs> What happens on tour stays on tour. (laughs) Welcome to Album Clash, everyone. This is the final part in our final clash of our electro season. So last week I took us through OMD's organisation. Kev, what will you be speaking about today? This week I will be taking us through uh, Soft Cell's debut album, Nonstop Erotic Cabaret. And what a treat we have in store. Sexy. (laughs) Please don't ever whisper sexy again. <laughs> Although now I can't stop thinking about Shawn Michaels' theme tune. <laughs> they think I'm cute. I know I'm sexy. I got them. I know what my pick for next week's can't get out of my head's going to be as well. And I don't mean the shite. <laughs> oh dear. Welcome to Album Clash, everyone. Yeah, we are going to be going through Non-Stop Erotic Cabaret today. Beforehand, however, it's my pick for Video Killed the Radio Star. Very topical. (laughs) Unintentionally very topical. (laughs) This is a video that I have wanted to talk about for quite some time. So, what is it? I hear the audience crying. Uh, The video is the video to Nobody Speak by DJ Shadow featuring Run The Jewels. It is from his 2016 album, The Mountain Will Fall, and it's directed by Sam Pilling. So, Kev, yeah, you said topical. Describe the scene for me. So, it's essentially a roundtable at some kind of conference. There are various diplomats from presumably the major nations sat around the table. And two of the diplomats do the singing of of the song, but in a kind of rap battle style. Yep, exactly that. So two old white male political leaders. I mean, Christ, guys, be realistic at least. (laughs) (laughs) As you said, hurl abuse one another by mouthing the lyrics. So one of my notes uh, regarding it, I I think it's an absolutely brilliant video, but one of the first notes I made down was, Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. And that might or might not have been one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this video. Oh, dear. Go and watch Dr. Strangelove. It's brilliant. Second reference to Dr. Strangelove on this clash. I know. And no Simpsons references. So, yeah, that negotiation soon breaks down into a full-on brawl, which for some reason includes a pig running across the floor, but, you know, okay. Presume is some kind of reference to general capitalism. I guess so. And it ends with one of the protagonists lunging at the other with an American flag made into a makeshift spear. Yeah, and he's about to finish him off. 
with the Stars and Stripes when the video abruptly sort of comes to an end, really. It it does. So it comes to an end when the, the, the cleaner walks in, the janitor <laughs> walks in, looking disdainfully at everyone and just highlighting the absurdity of the whole thing, which I think is a just brilliantly observed, really subtle mm-hmm. way to highlight the the mockery of the whole thing and unfortunately as as we said is very topical this week of all weeks well it is indeed so we record this in the week in which russian forces have invaded ukraine and i don't propose to dwell on that no well all all i was going to say was they're definitely peacekeepers they're definitely peacekeepers no we've invaded it's an exercise it's an exercise it's yeah quite well anyway that's Moving swiftly on. Indeed. Um, I just want to quote DJ Shadow, who told Pitchfork quite sarcastically that we wanted to make a positive, life-affirming video that captures politicians at their election year best. We got this instead. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So there are cameo appearances from the members of Run the Jewels and DJ Shadow wearing an immense toupee in this video. (laughs) So I love the tune. I think it's that it's got a huge beat and a great bassline, and the video is really fun. It's it's a it's a belting video combined with a with a really good song. All it was missing was one of the um, protagonists just shouting "fight" um, in a schoolyard <laughs> style. Yeah, absolutely. Because it all kicks off. So had you seen the video before I sent it I to you? I hadn't know, week? and so I I really enjoyed it. So I had seen it, but it's it's an interesting, an interesting thing to reflect on that loads of the videos that we've done are, you know, from the last few years, if you know what mm-hmm. I mean. And and it's great to see the music video thriving in the social media age, is all I'll say. Yeah, definitely, because Certainly for the period in the mid-2000s, up until sort of for 10 years, that people stopped really doing music videos and just did lyric videos, which, which we, you know, we've had, we've had an example of that and where someone's done something interesting with it, but mostly like they didn't bother because it was cheaper, like just get a, mm-hmm. a computer-based animator to knock you something together and there, there you're done. Yeah, exactly. But no, some very good videos are still being made. uh, And this is an example thereof. So Mm -hmm. with that, shall we move on? Yes, let's move on. Okay, Kev, please invite us into your nonstop erotic cabaret. Indeed I shall. So it's the debut album by Soft Cell, released in the UK on the 27th of November 1981 by Some Bizarre Records. Quite apt, really. <laughs> yes. Given lots of the things that are covered. Um, it was hugely critically and commercially successful and was essentially powered by the success of the debut single from the album. Which, Very much so. Which we, we might talk about a little bit. Something of a powerhouse. Yeah. And so much so that the album itself had a reported advance orders in the US of 200,000 copies. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah, for a cover. Well, it's not the sort of album on the face of things that you would imagine would strike a chord with much of the American market. Indeed, because they are very, very British. Yes. So before we before we get into the album, let's talk, I'll talk a little bit about Soft Cell, how they how they came about, and how essentially Nonstop Erotic Cabaret came about. 
So uh, Mark Almond and Dave Ball encountered each other at Leeds Polytechnic. They were both at uni there. Mark Almond um, from Southport, Dave Ball from another northern seaside town, Blackpool. Southport in Merseyside, Merseyside. (laughs) Not Lancashire. Blackpool in Lancashire. (laughs) (laughs) So they came across each other and Mark Almond was very much an exuberant, arty type fella. Dave Ball, very much... um, reserved but much more technically minded and he was the synth pioneer really of the of the two of them sorry i would just like to go back to their their roots their their lancashire seaside town sorry merseyside and lancashire seaside town (laughs) roots so in an interview with on magazine just last year mark armand said i think being born in lancashire in seaside towns merseyside mark merseyside although to be fair it's pre-74 so fine I think being born in seaside towns gives you a vaudevillian sensibility. It's the home of cheap showbiz and hard-bitten entertainers, lurid cabarets, casinos and pier shows, seaside postcards, Coronation Street and the Beatles. Being born in the North gives you a tough survival instinct and the humour to deal with it, which I think is really, really important when we talk about this album. We definitely needed it with Soft Cell in the early days because we were treated by some quarters as the cheap seaside show poor Northerners. Well, and... There's a thing about seaside towns. So if you've ever been to Blackpool or Southport or, you know, any on the other side of the country like Scarborough out of season is that they are grim places out of season. There's also like in these in these towns, more so Blackpool than than Southport, although Southport has its has its parts. There's the sort of family sheen to it, but then there's the slightly darkened underbelly to it. And that kind of sensibility and growing up there is that you can understand why both of them were attracted to that kind of thing. And Mark Almond, you know, he also talks about in his autobiography that he had experience working in like the Leeds club scene, but he was... He was also influenced by the world of cinema. So like the British kitchen sink dramas of the of the 60s. Uh, so you think of something like A Touch of Honey or The Loneliness of the Long Distance uh, Runner, you know, and he's also influenced, and you can definitely see this by work of John Waters, trash art movies of Andy Warhol, George Romero films, Dario Argento mystery. So, you know, you can see that kind of dark underbelly thing and the yes. the dirty dirty seedier side which John Waters very much was bang into <laughs> yes so yeah just in terms of their early recordings really so as Kev said Mark Armand and Dave Ball came together well when they were both attending Leeds Polytechnic in 1977 and they started experimenting and doing gigs on that club scene in Leeds and they sort of got a cult underground following often as a result of Mark Armand's extravagant stage performances in a similar way to we said a few weeks back about Iggy Pop actually you know he used to do things like smear himself with cat food and simulate sexual intercourse with a full-length mirror so through that they recorded a, an EP called Mutant Moments that was released as a limited pressing of 2,000 copies. One of the tracks on that EP was Frustration, which was later re-recorded for Non-Stop Erotic Cabaret, as we will come to talk about. And that buzz created by the Mutant Moments EP 
attracted some record company interest. So Dave Ball, in an article with The Quietus last year, he said, I think both Daniel Miller from Mute Records and Steve O'Pierce from Sun Bazaar wanted to sign both us and Depeche Mode. We ended up with Sun Bazaar and they ended up with Mute. So they recorded a track called The Girl With The Patent Leather Face, which was included on the Sun Bazaar compilation album and ironically produced by Daniel Miller, founder of Mute Records. And so basically the record company wanted them to capitalise on that success and get back into the studio as soon as possible. So the buzz around that release that, that they'd been on leads to the leads to Sun Bazaar deciding to release memorabilia, which doesn't chart and bombs completely. But it did have an underground following in the US. Indeed. But the record company basically said, right, you're going to release Tainted Love. And if this doesn't work, you're gone. Then you're gone. They, they, yeah. that's, that's you done. I mean, can we just say memorabilia is fucking great. Yeah. Which it, it seems mad that that didn't even tickle the charts. Exactly. It's been quoted or cited as being the first ever Acid House tune, mm-hmm. and I can see why. It's got a real Acid House sensibility to it. And yeah, it is absolutely mad that it didn't chart. I mean, we've slagged off the 1980s British record buying public before. They are more than deserving of, of our ire <laughs> for not charting memorabilia. How dare you? So they're basically told you have to release Tainted Love, which which was kind of part of why they've been signed, because... People had seen the performance, like in their live shows, where they they had they previously uh, did Frankie Valley's "The Night," which is a song that they later go on to cover in about two thousand and three. But they replace it in their usual set list with "Tainted Love," which everyone thought was an absolute banger. So the label says you have to release this. They the band insist that well, if you're going to make us do that, then. All right, the B side is going to be uh, the Supremes' "Where Did Our Love Go," mm. um, which is a belting song. Um, however, <laughs> financially didn't work out well for them. <laughs> Dave Ball says so. Over the years, that decision to record two cover versions and not one of our own songs on the B side was to cost Mark and me about a million quid each in lost writing credit royalty earnings. <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> And so the single does well, gets them onto Top of the Pops. Um, And as we've talked about before, Top of the Pops is massive and hugely important. And the label, again, it starts interfering. So in The Quietest, Dave Ball says, uh, for our first Top of the Pops appearance, the label was saying, well, get a bass guitar and a drummer. And they're like, what? Like, what, what are you talking about? We're a synth duo. And like he says, the public got it straight away, but record companies... Suppose in this time, supposedly radical punk bands didn't get it at all. They told told Mark, "You're not allowed to wear bangles, and you're not allowed to wear eyeliner." I'm sure Mark Armand, being the uh, the shy retiring character that he is, was very uh, obedient and subservient to that. And said, "Yes, of course, I will do exactly what you say, record company." Yes. So Mark wore as much eyeliner as possible and as many bangles as he could. That <laughs> is right. <laughs> so, and Mark Allman says, I remember them instructing me which camera to look to for the second appearance and telling me to ditch the look. I ignored them and was right to do so, as like Bolin and Bowie had illuminated my life. I since found out that I had such an effect on others. They felt they weren't alone. I soon learned to use it to my advantage to see what I could get away with. 
the biggest false eyelashes and acting super effeminate, which brought out homophobia from the most unexpected corner sometimes. But like the simple fact of the matter is, is that that performance led to the led to the song getting to number one and it becoming the best selling single in the UK in 1981. Indeed. So I just want to come back briefly to that Mark Armand quote you were just saying about his realization that what he was doing was resonating with a particular audience. He knows what he's doing. He knows what buttons he's pushing. And that is very much what his stage presence and what this album is all about. And we're going to talk about it several times as we go through the songs. But it is speaking to Middle England, to white America, that community of people that likes to pretend that this seedy underbelly of society doesn't really exist, or if it does, it's something that they completely ignore. Well, sorry, but with people like Mark Armand, he's going to shine a light on it. He's going to get right up in your face with it, and fucking fair play to you, lad. Yeah, Mark Armand is unashamedly Mark Armand, and fucking Mm. fair play to you, because doesn't back down. Like, he is who he is, and shows you the, the mirror back to yourself. So the success of the of Tainted Love means that the the band, well, the label suddenly wants them to record an album. So along with the uh, recording engineer Mike Thorne, who they brought on board, they go to Media Sound Studio in New York. Just what you do, you know. Let's we want you to do an album. So let's send people to the height and epicenter of the hedonistic club scene in 1980, New York, to go and record an album. Nothing could possibly go wrong. (laughs) And they very much found that. (laughs) So according to Dave Ball, it's not the drug album that some people have attributed it to. So they, they definitely discovered ecstasy whilst there. However, according to Dave Ball, so basically there's a rumor going around that they were all pilled up off their faces uh, when recording the album. He says that's not true. He says, with the remix EP, that was closer to the truth. But the original album was a totally drug-free affair. We were very conscientious when we were in the studio because we knew it was a big chance. We didn't want to mess it up. We'd have a blowout on Friday and Saturday night, take it easy on Sunday, then work through the week. Okay, uh, so that may be what Dave Ball says, but there are two other people who <laughs> contributed to this album who have said somewhat different things. Indeed. So from that same quietest article that you've just quoted. So firstly backing vocalist Josephine Warden. She said the recording sessions would always start with us all slightly buzzing from the ecstasy we'd always taken the night before. It wasn't long before we were using it in and out of the studio. The recording sessions were a continuation of our nights out in the clubs we'd just left at six that morning. The party just continued. I can still hear and feel the buzz and the atmosphere when I listen to the album now. Okay, so that's one account. Now, what about a gentleman by the name of Mark Armand, (laughs) who says, The whole New York club and art scene had an incredible influence on us. We were taken to meet Andy Warhol, one of my heroes, and nightclubs of the like I'd never been to. My first night in New York was in Studio 54, although in its last throes. Drugs, of course, amazing creative people, dance music like I'd never heard before. A totally wild and vibrant time to be there in New York. I felt at home for the first time. Of course that found its way into the studio, and our first two albums are infused with that energy. So, 
I don't know. I think they're all unreliable narrators here. <laughs> Very much so, yes. <laughs> I mean, I love this quote from Mark Holman from his his autobiography, Tainted Life. I mean, firstly, that's a great name for an autobiography. Yes, it is. So the, the title itself, the Nonstop Erotic Cabaret, is inspired by a neon sign in Soho. And the, the album itself, it wears its themes on its sleeve. So... He says in, in in his autobiography, most 80s bands were singing about boy meets girl and boy loses girl or else girl boy meets girl and lives happily ever after. We were singing about boy meets girl and lures her into a life of drugs and prostitution. <laughs> Fucking hell. Well, there you go. So I'll continue because, I mean, he is, he is great for quotes. <laughs> We wanted the album to be a peep show of sounds, a glimpse into a seedy world, a soundtrack to a striptease clip joint, a well-thumbed diary of glimpses through a red-lit doorway. And, (laughs) yeah. Mission accomplished. Yeah. (laughs) Brilliant quotes. And, I mean, so the, the album, they don't shy away from anything at all. So no. they decided to to like have a have a video documentary, which is like sort of videos associated <laughs> with it, which was called Nonstop Exotic Video Show. <laughs> and like the thing is, compared to now, the imagery that was used on the song Sex Dwarf is fairly tame. So Dave Bull wore had a chainsaw and wore a rubber butcher's apron, whilst Mark and the Dwarf wore black fetish wear. But this massively offended the sensibilities of conservative England. So much so that the police staged a raid on the Sunbazaar office as a result. And WH Smith refused to stock the video unless the offending segment was excised. (laughs) Apparently, bootleg copies of this video were reputedly changing hands in Soho for £30 each. (laughs) I love the fact that, like the song Sex Dwarf, was directly influenced by a News of the World headline. And they just said, how could we resist making a mutant disco track based on that? Well, apart from citing the News of the World, I agree. Well, indeed. <laughs> very, very good. I can't wait to get into it now. I know, it's it's great. So, before we uh, talk about the cover, Tim, how did you first hear this album? So, this is another first listen for me. So you've mentioned Tainted Love, and that is obviously an all-time classic, but I have to admit, I have never explored Soft Cell's oeuvre beyond that song. So, yeah, a new one for me. So, equally for me, it was a new one on me that I had heard tell of the album, I'd heard several songs off it, but I had never listened to the whole thing through. But I know how influential it was, and really wanted to see what was what was going on with it. So it was a it was an entirely new experience for myself. Well, there you go. Okay, so let us move on to artwork, and it's a very distinctive uh, photo taken by Peter Ashworth. Yeah, it is. So there's a great there's a great story again from Mark Holman's autobiography. At the last minute in the photo session, I picked up a copy of Vogue, wrapped it in a brown paper bag as if it were porn I was trying to conceal, and drew it surreptitiously from my jacket for a touch of sleaze. In fact, both Dave and I preferred another photo in which I'm exposing my shoulder whilst a psychotic-looking Dave is about to plunge a switchblade into me. (laughs) I can't help but think that that second image may have hampered their efforts of getting it uh, on sale in record stores, however. So, I mean, 
I think it's a brilliant image. It is. Lovely font. Oh, I mean, I'm a big fan of a neon sign. Yeah, it's perfectly done. It's lit so well. It's so seedy. And that decision from Mark Holman to like have that magazine in a brown paper bag, like it just works perfectly as a sort of dirty backstreet in Soho. Absolutely right, it does. As well as this brilliant 80s leather jacket that they're wearing. Mark Armin wearing sunglasses. Yeah, it is so seedy, as you said. It perfectly captures the mood of this album. And exactly, as I mentioned a minute ago, the buttons that they were trying to push. Without question. Although, can I say something about how Mark Almond looks? Please do. He looks like Phil Spector. (laughs) And in that... Uh, it's the only comparison we're going to draw between Mark yeah. Harmon and Phil Spector. Mark Harmon, <laughs> as far as we're aware, is not a murderer. No, Phil Spector is a murderer, though. Phil Spector is definitely a murderer, as we've discussed many times on the pod. <laughs> is it the Buffon hairstyle? I think it's a Buffon hairstyle, and also the shades, shades as well, because I'm thinking sort of Let It Be era Spectre. Yeah, yeah. What I, I know what you mean. What I would say is the Buffon hairstyle very much reflects Mark Armand's Northern Soul roots in terms of his musical influences, which obviously we'll talk about shortly. But I know what you mean. For me, this is the better of the two album covers. Without question. Because it is just so perfectly pitched for what the album is. Although what I will say is that whilst this is the better cover, both covers perfectly evoke the atmospheres of those albums. So Agreed. that bleakness on in organization is reflected by that image and the the simplicity of the of the cover. This has this exudes pure sleaze. It does. I agree entirely. It's pure filth. It's pure grubby Soho late night peep show. Dirty flasher backstreet. Like that, that's <laughs> yeah. all. Like those two look wrongans. <laughs> they really do. <laughs> right. Okay. Shall we get into it? Yeah. Let's get. Let's get into it. So we open the album with frustration. So it's a re-recorded version of an early track which had been featured on Mutant Moments and was very much a focal point of their live sets, which kind of established their branding of art, sex, synths with like a dirty, sinister undertone. Um, They achieved that (laughs) in this song. So yeah, this is one, and it's a theme that comes through a number of times on this album. It's about the boredom and monotony of conformist suburban life and the increasing desperation that that brings. And for me, the lyrics at the end, and the way that they are sung, which I'll come to momentarily, really, really highlight that. So Mm. the lyrics are, I'm so tired of endless art, love stories. I'm beginning to not give a damn. I wish I could reach right out for the untouchable. Film starring Bruce... John Wayne, Elvis Presley, experiment with cocaine, LSD, and set a bad example. Live little, run a harem, be a tiger, Gareth Cheeseman. <laughs> Meet Bo Derek and be her Tarzan. Reach out, reach out. Live, live, live. Die, die, die. I, 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 I wanna die. Fucking hell, that's bleak for an opening track of an album. <laughs> 
And I think the way that Mark Harmon just, he sort of spits it out like a rambling stream of consciousness just highlights that despondency, that desperation, that like, ah, I need to, I'm going to fucking explode if I don't get out of this prison. So he sounds great. It's got that kind of really stripped back electro sound, which works really well. You've got an absolutely filthy sax all over it. Yes. And like, the thing is, like, when I first heard it, like, I didn't like the frustration opening. It kind of, it didn't work for me initially. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. But then once the song actually kicks in, it's like, this is fucking great. And it grows so well, like, sonically. What I like, because I had the same reaction to the opening the first time I heard it. What I like is that it's that, along with the final, I want to die, which is screamed in a sort of primal howl of frustration, pardon the pun, is a nice bookend to the song, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. The saxophone part, you're absolutely right. And we should give a shout out to David Tafani, who plays that saxophone solo, because it is brilliant. Yeah, it's a really interesting track, this. It's got a darkness to it. It's got an urgency to it, mm-hmm. which sets off the vocal in the way the bass and the synth comes in. One thing I will say, and this is something I'll come to on a later track as well, the main riff is a really odd sort of plinky-plink synth sound, which it almost sounds like it's played on a xylophone. (laughs) It's just odd. It's just in stark contrast to the rest of the song. So what what I will say, and we've not really talked about it, is that they didn't have a huge amount of equipment They'd they'd got what hold of what they could, and so the limitations to their sound or that bits that don't really seem as though they should be there, that kind of speaks to the fact that it was their debut, and they didn't really they were doing this on a wing and a prayer, you know. Like if it hadn't been for Tainted Love, then they weren't even recording this album. So yeah, a very fair point. Okay, so most albums have a behemoth. <laughs> most bands have a behemoth. This is very much soft sells. It's tainted love. <laughs> what can you say? I mean, when you talk about cover versions that eclipse the original, this very much is one of them. I, I mean, I love the Gloria Jones original. It's great. But the simple fact is, if you played the Gloria Jones version in most places, a lot of people would, after the tainted love bit, do like a two-hand clap from this yep. song because it yep. is so so eponymous is so well known and it's brilliant just to be clear eponymous it's not eponymous means named after the artist it's not eponymous <laughs> ubiquitous you've said that before so, yeah, once know. again we are retreading old album clash ground god damn it <laughs> but you're right yeah you're absolutely right it's yeah it's a behemoth it's a monolith it is the track for which and with which Soft Cell will forever be associated. And I think the beauty of Mark Holman's performance, and we're going to talk about his vocal delivery and everything a lot throughout this album, is that the way he delivers Tainted Love, it gives it a dual meaning. Oh, God, yeah. It's Tainted Love, it's Dirty Love, like, and it fits yeah. perfectly with the with the album. It's so well done. It is so well done. So I've said that his style on this is laconic. Mm-hmm. He's almost singing it like a seedy lounge singer. 
the sound of the song isn't that, but do you know what I mean? His vocal style yeah. on this, it's exactly that. It is double entendre. It is dirty love. It's forbidden love. It is round the back of the porno theatre. Hold on to that thought. We'll be there in a minute. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It is, it is absolutely that. Yeah. So, you know, the, t- the tainted love thing, because of the, the stripped back sounds, because of the performance from Mark Holman, this is like... It's a dirty knee trembler behind the club. It's like it's a caught moment of sexual ecstasy or something, which is which they know is wrong, but like they can't. Do you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. it's got all that going on with it. Uh-huh. Absolutely, it is. It is a quickie behind the porno theatre. Yeah, it, it's a blowy in the bike shed. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking school did you go to? <laughs> No, you're right. You're right. It absolutely is. But just to speak about the song for a second. So, yes, as you said, it was originally recorded by Gloria Jones in 1964. That version was just a B-side to a single My Bad Boys Coming Home released on Motown. And it was a flop both over in the US and here in the UK. But in the 70s, it gained a following in Northern Soul Clubs. And that is where... Mark Armand and Dave Ball discovered it. And again, it speaks to what their musical roots and their musical education was, that there is, as they've already said, the vaudeville side of things coming in. But there was also this education in soul music and what had been going on in the States 10, 20 years previously. So I I believe that in a Northern Soul Club that Mark Holman was, he worked in the cloakroom or something like that. Okay. So that's kind of how he became aware of um, Take Your Love and obviously uh, the the other Northern Soul bangers. I think this really showcases... Mark Armand's singing prowess. So, oh god, yeah. We talked about his primal howl and desperation and and screaming out frustration. This is, well, as I said, laconic in a way. The man was incredibly talented. Is incredibly talented. He's not dead. <laughs> <laughs> so, just to quote again from that Quietus article in terms of this song. So Mark Armand said, even Phonogram didn't have a lot of faith in it, or really us in general. We were odd and they didn't get us. It was the label's decision to release Tainted Love as the next single. A record company will go for the cover version always, as it's the easiest option. We need Tainted Love in a day. The vocal is the first or second take, and I played the syndrome sounds that became hooks. When it started to move into and up the charts, it was a bit of a shock. Thrilling too, but life felt like it was never going to be the same. So, the talk about the synth parts that become hooks. Have you ever heard another song where a simple synth part, which is just one note played twice, becomes an iconic part of a song? Because that's what this is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, because everyone knows. Like, all you'd need to do was play that one note, boop, boop. and everyone goes, it's Take Your Love. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. The test of a good cover version is, does it do something different? Does it do something original, interesting? Absolutely, yes, this does. Mm -hmm. But I would also say it retains the soul, to pardon the pun, of the original. Yeah. I love it. So there have been other versions of the song. (laughs) Oh, God, go on. (laughs) Marilyn Manson did one. Sex Offender. 
<laughs> I was about to say, I'm not going to make any comment there. Apparently, the Pussycat Dolls did a version. Oh, God. I bet that's <laughs> terrible. Oh, my God. Wow. I mean, the Marilyn Manson version's awful. It's fucking dreadful. Given how he presents himself and everything like that, it's such an anodyne version as well. Mm-hmm. It's got no balls to it. It's got like... nothing to it at all. Dreadful. Okay. Shall we move on to CD films? <laughs> yes. Let's. <laughs> so, I mean, fucking hell. I mean, we've talked about the potential sort of seedy underbelly that's hinted at in Tainted Love. <laughs> it ain't no hinting here. No, no. Fuck me. <laughs> right, so let's... Lyrics from it. Sleazy City, CD films, breathing heavy next to my neighbour. Blue films flicker while the hands of a stranger get to know you. <laughs> he's not messing yeah. about. No, he's not at all. It's an absolute celebration of the sordid, dirty underbelly in Soho. It is. And that lack of nuance, that lack of subtlety, that's the entire point. This is a song that is intended to be in your face, yeah. to be provocative. It is the grubby side of society. As I said earlier, that Middle England and white America want to pretend doesn't exist. Or if it does exist, it's far away. Where it's, no, I'm sorry, Mark Harmon's going to grab you by the back of the head and fucking hold your face right in the dirt. It's here. It's in your life. Get used to it. He sounds like an absolute predator. On the <laughs> yeah, it does. Sleazy, mucky. You feel like you need a wash after you've listened to this. Yes, smutty. All of the adjectives we used when we described nightclubbing by Iggy Pop apply to this song. It is absolute filth. I'm going further. Like I feel like I need to check my ears to see whether I've I've caught oral gonorrhea. <laughs> So, lascivious is how I've described the vocal. Yeah. Because it is. You know what I mean? This isn't just adjective bingo. It is lascivious. It's filthy. It's it's the dirt under your fingernails. It's showing it all to you. And I I think it's, it's an intelligent decision from them that musically it's stripped back and it... It allows his kind of laconic de- delivery to sort yes. of spread all over the song and give you that. He's he's your tour guide through the dirty back streets. Indeed. So I think the clarinet part, so again, it's oh, played God. by Dave Tafani. It's just, it, it emphasizes all of those things we've just said. Yeah. As do the breathy, provocative backing vocals from Josephine Warden. It is playing to and highlighting the repressed sexuality of 1980s conservative England. It's scandalising. Yeah, it is. I mean, like, there isn't really much more to say about it. Like, I really like it. I really like it too. Could you knock a minute or so off the end of it, though, is all I would ask. Yes. So I said, maybe goes on too long. Yeah. Okay. So... We move on from that to youth, which again has a really, really sinister opening. It does. Uh, Not a song about the former Killing Joke bassist and noted producer, uh, (laughs) but instead about 
growing old and looking back with regret, with remorse, whatever it is, about your life. Youth has gone. Don't think I don't cry. We let ourselves slip. Now I ask myself why. I'm on my own and don't really think I mind when after all the years have been fairly kind. I mean, and given the age of Mark Holmans, yeah. uh, like he's only in sort of like his early early to mid-twenties at this point. Mm-hmm. The maturity of the lyrical composition and that is, yep. it's amazing. So I think this sounds quite, well, OMD, Joy Division influenced actually. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very, it's very different sounding. It's really dark. There's an air of foreboding to that synth part. And then, well, we've used, again, get your album Clash bingo cards out, guys. There's a cinematic quality to the sound of this. Yeah, there's a synth part, a bass synth part that comes in in the chorus, which just gives a heightened sense of dread, of foreboding, as I mentioned a second ago. This, to me, is another one that tries to show you the dirt under the fingernails of life and the facade that everyone is, mm. is putting on. I think this song is as relevant today as it was 40 years ago. Well, yeah, because it's regret. It's raging against the dying of the light. The, you're no longer the, the young, vibrant being that you once were. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Which, as you said, considering Mark Armand at this time was very much that young, vibrant being, it belies a real understanding of life, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean, and, and, and a humanity. Yeah, I like this a lot. Yeah, it's, do you know what? Like, So initially, I wasn't sure about it. I thought it was perfectly fine, but didn't feel it went anywhere and it passed me by. But then on subsequent lessons, it's got a, it's got a depth that you don't initially pick up. And it takes you a couple of goes at it, but once you once you hear it, it's like, yeah, there's mm-hmm. there's a hell of a lot here. It is, yeah. it's speaking it's speaking with a depth that you don't really expect with the, with the other things, <laughs> the other themes that you're sort of uh, <laughs> dealing with on the album. Not that they they're superficial, but it's talking to a wider thing than than just a tour through the dark underbelly. I suppose. Speaking of which. Let's go on to Sex Dwarf. (laughs) Yeah, let's. So this is, as we said, was infamous at the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, fucking hell, lyrically, Jesus. It's got some fucking lines in here. So luring disco dollies to a life of vice. I will parade you down the high street on a lead. (laughs) You know, there's, there's all kinds of shit going on here. Yeah, there is. So I like the way it follows straight on from youth. It's a, there's, there's a deliberate not letting you settle. You're straight into the next track. There's a real urgency to it. You know, the rhythm, the bass part, they drive everything along. And there's pure malevolence in oh God, the yeah. vocal on this. As I've said a few times, he knows he's pushing your buttons. He wants to watch you squirm when you listen to this. It's so seedy. It's not like because you could just go like lyrically, oh yeah, it's dead CD because it's it's this, it's that, but it's it's the package. So musically, lyrically, the way he performs it and delivers the lyrics and everything that it is, it's just dirty. It <laughs> you is. know, there's there's no other word. And I think the way it opens is really important as well because it puts you off kilter and 
So you're already musically on the edge and then then you're being nudged like with the yeah. lyrics, with everything else. It's like, can you take this? Can you take exactly. this? Exactly. And it, like, it's brilliant. It's it's so clever. You've got, 100%. You've got leery backing vocals again, which raise the temperature. It's acerbic. Lyrically, musically, it's acerbic. It's wry. It's... This is going to sound like a criticism, and I do not mean it as such. It's the natural extension of confessions of a window cleaner that's the environment this comes from it's repressed british sexuality but we're going to turn it up to 11 and again we're going to get in your face with it so i understand the reason you you brought the image of robert robin asquith is that his name yeah why you why you brought him to the party is that uh, so I would argue that it's it's not a reflection of that. It's it's kind of a reaction to it. Okay, yeah, that's a better way of saying it. Yes. Yeah, that nudge, nudge, wink, wink, end of the pier kind of will make a reference to sex, but you know we're we're British, so we're not gonna we're not saucy actually gonna... postcard Britain. Yeah, you know we we might yeah. we might make a a little bit of a reference to it, but we're not really going to talk about it. Mark Holman's like, no, you're gonna fucking hear this. That's like, fair. This is life. This is the reality of it. This is yeah. the dark underbelly, and you're gonna hear it. And you're either gonna go with me, or you're gonna <laughs> say that this is not for me at all. No, that's. A, I think that's a better reflection on it. Actually, I, yeah, I, I agree. I have to say, musically, I don't think it's a particularly exciting tune, but it is more than made up for by the lyrical content and the way that it's mm-hmm. all constructed together this achieves exactly what it sets out to and so for that it deserves immense credit yeah definitely okay let's move on to entertain me so i've heard so uh in one of the articles i read i saw it was described as an obvious nod to um allman's performance art background definitely okay what do you think before I say what I think about it, I'm going to speak to what you just said, because it absolutely is. It sounds like a circus in the background. Whistles, mm-hmm. bells, slide whistles, crowd noises. It, it evokes that vaudevillian sensibility that he mentioned. The end of the pier, you know, Blackpool, Pleasure Beach, yeah. Southport. It, it's exactly what this is. I'm not a fan. Don't I'm like a, it. I, it just sort of happens. So I like the stripped vocal opening, but I'm not sure about the back and vocals. Oh, yeah, they irritate me. Yes. I like his performance throughout, but the affectations feel a bit sixth form art school. <laughs> yeah. There are elements I like, but generally I don't really enjoy the song. Musically, it's not particularly interesting, and those vaudevillian elements piss me off. Yeah. I agree entirely. I think the backing vocals are irritating. And actually, when you've got a really nice and beautifully sung a cappella opening to a song, they are a hugely unwelcome distraction. Yeah, they they, they actually diminish the vocal. Mm, they do. And yeah, there are things to like about it. But to me, it all just sort of happens around me and doesn't engage me at, at any point. 
The one thing I would like to call out is the vocal from Mark Armand. Mm-hmm. It's because it's he sings it at breakneck speed. He never seems to pause for breath. I'd love to know actually how many takes it took to to lay down the vocal because you know there's there's never a moment to rest. No, not at all. But yeah, not a great tune for me. Okay, we move on to chips on my shoulder. It's a funny old one, this, isn't it? Uh, chips on my shoulder or soft self's cover of popcorn, as one might call it. <laughs> I mean, I think it opens really well, and it's got a really good, exciting, high-energy kind of vibe to it. I th- Like, for me, the chorus doesn't work with the verse. I think the verse is dead exciting, and then the chorus is a bit boring. Oh, that's interesting. I don't agree, actually. I like the chorus. Misery, complaints, self-pity, injustice, chips on my shoulder. I think gets to the heart of what the song is about it's about resentment basically Mm -hmm. and i think the chorus and i think mark Armand's performance again gets to the heart of that there's a freneticism there's an urgency there's a vibrancy with the way he spits out those lyrics that is what the subject matter demands for me okay what i definitely noted down is that you can certainly feel that they had come from the punk aesthetic. They come from the punk movement. Absolutely. Because it, this is a very punky... It, it's a punky electro song, really. It has anarchic undertones, yes. Yeah. But, I mean, like the, as with everything that we've heard on this album, whilst I'm not necessarily as keen on it as you are, there's definitely stuff to like on it. Even if I'm not that keen on that as a song, there's loads going on there. Yeah, agreed entirely. It's too long, is what I will say. Yeah. You could get rid of, easily get rid of the last 30 seconds, and it would be a much more concise pop song. But um, no, again, to me, this is one that combines challenging, confrontational lyrics with catchy, danceable pop sensibility. And so I quite like Chips on My Shoulder. Okay, fair enough. So then we go on to Bed Sitter. Yeah. I mean, Christ, what do the Americans think of this? (laughs) (laughs) Are beds it a thing? I mean, like, in terms of sort of evoking the loneliness of being in in a big city on your own and returning back from your whatever you've been up to in in town and then coming back to your lonely bed. I mean, I don't I can't think of another song that sort of evokes that as well. Yes, it does. It certainly evokes, again, that seedy underbelly of the London club scene, and it describes the lonely reality of that life. It's got such a desperation to it. And Almond's vocals, I mean, we've talked about them before, they just absolutely elevate this song. So I think musically, if it was a more ordinary singer with less... Mm-hmm charm and charisma to their voice then this this would become a very ordinary piece of music but the way he acts it in his voice gives it so much pathos in in my mind i can see what you mean and to an extent i agree but i think more than anything else on this album or on organization this sounds very much of its time there are things to like. Yes, there is a desperation and a darkness to the lyric. And I think that is emphasised by the sparseness of the music, which 
we said on second thought last week. But I can't help but think that this is a little unfinished. I think this could be much, much more than it is with a little more energy and time put into the music, at least. I get get that. The main riff sounds like it's been played on a kid's Yamaha keyboard. (laughs) I'm sorry, but it does. I, I, I can't say that this does anything for me, and I'd like it to, because I agree. Lyrically, there's a lot to delve into. You know, dancing, laughing, drinking, loving, and now I'm alone in Bedsitland, my only home. There's a lot to explore there. I just think, to me, this sounds very rushed. Or it speaks to, as we as we talked about before, the limitations of the equipment that they had access to. Yes, perhaps. And and, may, and maybe also the limitations of their musicianship at this stage yeah, as well. Yeah, but yes, maybe you're right. Although on one of the tracks we're still yet to speak about, I would say that brings the light of what mm-hmm. you've just said, perhaps. I mean, someone who would very much disagree with what I've said would appear to be the British record by public of 1981, who on the 29th of October put this to number four in the UK singles chart. Well, I suppose it spoke to, it it certainly spoke to a truth. I just think this is a missed opportunity to have been a real scything commentary on life at this time. And it misses the mark for me, that's all I'm going to say. I disagree with you. I think it does meet the mark. However, I think you have a point to make that if it was musically better, it would have a greater impact because there's more to grab onto. Yes. Okay. So we move on to the secret life of Adrian Mott. Sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, so we move on to the ninth track on the album, Secret Life. Wow. <laughs> I mean, this yeah. is a proper kitchen sink. I mean, as we as we talked about before, that. He was inspired by those kitchen sink dramas, and like, there's a whole thing going on here. So bear with me on. You're right. You're absolutely right. Bear with me on this. I think on this track in particular, there's such a similarity between the way Mark Harmon sings, and also in the themes that come through in the song. You know that sleazy side of suburban life. You know, curtain twitching and all that, and the way Jarvis Cocker sings on much of Pulp's output. It is unashamedly grubby. That's the whole point of this. It's knowingly lifting the curtain, lifting the veil on suburban life. You think love is a dirty, dirty word. You pick up the phone. You ring me when I'm at home, and then you put it down, and I'm reaching for my Valium. That is... Do you see my point there? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, like... In terms of the the Jarvis Cocker reference, I'm thinking of of something like um, you've got tracks like I Spy. You've got I tracks, Spy. I'm thinking yeah. of you know, you know the the line sort of being in possession of a little black book with names of people in the headlines that's evoking mm-hmm. sort of Jeremy Thorpe, uh, John mm-hmm. Profumo, You know, yes. so yeah, you know, and Mark Almond plays his role in this song so well. Like, it's just dripping with sleaze, mm-hmm. like his whole performance. And he sounds like he's genuinely taking delight in singing about these things. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 
and that's why you sort of reference to sort of uh, particularly I'm thinking of Ice by Jarvis Cocker, mm. where it's like um take a year in Provence, shove it up. You know, like all that yep. like I've yep. been fucking your wife and all that yep. stuff. Drinking your brandy. <laughs> yeah, just the joy in like yeah, I've been doing that, and you don't even—you yeah. couldn't do anything to stop me, yeah, and that exactly. comes through in this here. A hundred percent. I don't like this quite as much as I do CD films, but I still like it an awful lot. No, I get—I get what you mean. Like again, I—I I feel like we're—we're—we're we're, we're having a pop at Dave Ball, and Dave Ball's done some great stuff on it. Like he's the one who's responsible for the. Bam, bam, on <laughs> you know so but musically it's not it's not great mark armand is the star on this album exactly yeah so i can understand like getting out the way because he's the he's the star element of it but even in that is there not a backhanded admittedly but compliment and recognition of Dave Ball's talent is that he knows that Mark Armand is the star. He spoke about it in that Quietus article. We've not read the quote, but he speaks about it. He, he saw that Mark Armand had the star power, that he was the front man, that he was the, the flamboyant provocateur. Is there not a, a commendable talent in creating the music that allows Mark Armand to come to the fore and to, as we've said several times, get in your face. So, yes, but... So we talked about in Bed Sitter that there's not enough musically going on. A fair point, yeah. There's getting out the way, and then there's not being there enough. <laughs> mm-hmm. But we shall move on, and we shall go to say hello, wave goodbye. Yeah. And this, so... Whilst I may have had a slight pop of Dave Ball on the previous track, he, he's brought his game here. Um, everyone wow. brings their game here. This is phenomenal. It is. So it's the third and final single. It was released in January 82. It reached number three in the UK. Covered six times, including horrifically by wobble-headed singer-songwriter. Now, there's a fucking phrase to send shivers down your spine. <laughs> David Gray. I knew as soon as you said wobble-headed. <laughs> it is a dreadful version of this song. I mean, it's it's a beautiful song. And as I said, the I had a slight criticism of Dave Ball on the, on the last song and the previous song before that. This has absolutely perfect balance. Yes, it does. The synths are great. Like, musically, it's absolutely perfect in sync with Mark Holman's soaring vocals. It's utterly brilliant. I agree entirely. It perfectly showcases Mark Holman's voice. And it, that's why I put the challenge in on the last track. And I think you're absolutely right. It It, it is writ large here. You've got those really orchestral sounding synths that come in through the chorus that provide a perfect bed for Mark Armand to show that he's not just a provocateur. He he is a crooner when he wants to be. And I think the way he sings this, he does sound like a crooner. And that is mm-hmm. not in any way meant to be a criticism. Okay, thematically, it's a lot more conventional, if you like, than everything else on this. It's about a relationship that's ended. It's quite bitter in some of the lyrics. It's such a well put together song, though. It is. It's glorious. Yeah, you know, it's it's a beautiful piece of music. It's it has that poignancy. It has that lament. It, ha- it has all the elements that you want 
to bring to bear in this kind of song. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's performed brilliantly by everyone. It is a tour de force. It is indeed a tour de force. Yeah, I really, really like Say Hello, Wave Goodbye. It's a great way to end this album. So, we finish the album. Let us go on to how the album was received. So, mm. it depends, really. <laughs> yeah. So, Melody Maker was not a fan. Non-stop erotic cabaret confronts Clubland with its patchy past, rubs perspective in its pretty painted face and acts like it means nothing. Aggressively embarrassing. Cabaret is the brashest, most brilliant and least caring indictment of pop music's bankruptcy I've ever heard. No compassion, no sorrow, no joy. Just faces facts and moves to the motions. I think that is an unintentionally brilliant. Yeah, review. because and I think that is exactly what the album it is. is. It's like just, you got it, it's you completely just... misunderstood yeah. it. So the enemy found the album's premise to be hollow, complaining that the soft cell sex strategy should offer something spicy, rude, and even a little wonderful. But soft cell are conceptualists who rely on too many preconceptions and play around with too many ideas to convince you of any personal energy or commitment. Soft cell are very plain fare, unspectacular music, and very drab and flat lyrics wrapped in a hint of special promise, which is never realized. What a load of arse. Yeah, that's bollocks. <laughs> I could maybe accept the unspectacular music element, because we've kind of talked about that a little bit. We have, yeah. But drab and flat lyrics. Like, if there's one thing this album does not have, is drab lyrics. No. (laughs) So amazingly, amazingly, before we get on to his nobbers himself, smash hits of all the fucking (laughs) publications (laughs) highlights strong imaginative songs confidently performed with a definitive sense of theater and of humor and concluding it was an excellent debut well fair play to smash hits magazine maybe we read them wrong well, we'll co- we'll come on to smash hits in uh, when we talk about legacy. <laughs> I wonder what looking thought of it, <laughs> or Jackie. <laughs> uh, so I've got one retrospective before I get to Nobby, and this time it is from All Music. It's William Ruhlman. He said at full album length, lyricist Armand's primary preoccupation was spelled out. This was a theme album about aberrant sexuality, a tour of a red light district. The point was well made on Sex Dwarf with its oft-repeated chorus. Songs like CD Films, Entertain Me and Secret Life expanded upon that subject. The insistent beats taken at steady dance tempos and the chilling electronic sounds conjured by Ball emphasised Armand's fascination with deviance. It almost seemed as though the album had been designed to be played in topless bars. British listeners saw through Armand's pretense or were amused by him, or both. More puritanical Americans tended to disapprove, which probably limited the group's long-term success stateside, but the music was undeniably influential. Once again, I think all music sums it up pretty bloody well there. Yeah, that's really good. Shall we move on to someone who very rarely sums it up pretty well? (sighs) Okay, Le Professor. (laughs) I mean, it's short. That's what I'll say, it's short. So, it's that going for it. It's not the uh, Spinal Tap, it's short. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not that short. (laughs) And its length is pretty much all it's got going for it as well. All right, okay. So, Robert Criscow said, 
I've always found Tainted Love catchy annoying rather than catchy seductive. But these takeoffs on Clubland decadence, in inverted commas, get at the emotion underneath with just the right admixture of camp cynicism. Now you feel it, now you don't. Well, I suppose at least he likes it. I mean, sort of. <laughs> it's the Clubland decadence, in inverted commas. That, that, that's I know. The insufferable nature of the bell end. Exactly. It's like, I can see through this facade. Fuck you. You can't see through anything. You can't see through your pseudo-intellectual bollocks. Quite right. But there you go. Nobby's back. He's had two weeks off. Now he's back. So, Kev, what about the legacy? So, in terms of Soft Cell themselves, Non-Stop Erotic Cabaret did really well and established them on the scene. They subsequently uh, returned back to New York to uh, record their EP, which was Non-Stop Ecstatic Dancing. However, at the time, they were very much under the influence of ecstasy and were, were sort of struggling to get work done. They subsequently released The Art of Falling Apart, <laughs> ironically named, because the band basically kind of falls apart after that. They also had the single Numbers, which got to number 25, also generated controversy as it had numerous references to the drug speed. <laughs> uh, okay, so, yeah, on um, the disintegration of the band, if you like, Dave Ball said in a 2009 interview with Tour Dates that the band gave, he said, it was all a bit out of control and we were very naive. I suppose that was what's made it exciting. That sense that no one's really in control. But we were definitely bending under the strain. There were also the substances, which we tended to get more reliant on. By the end of it, we were very screwed up. And if we hadn't split up, one of us would probably have died. Seriously. They released a third album, The Last Night in Sodom, in 1984. And after that, they went their separate ways. So again... Dave Ball, this time in that quietest article we mentioned a few times. By last night in Sodom, we just had enough. We were always falling out of the record company, disagreeing with Steve-O and his ways. So we didn't really have proper management, and it was time for a break. So we said, let's call it a day for a few years. It ended up being a very long day. <laughs> so yeah, it wasn't until 2001 that they sort of returned um, with a series of, of live dates. And sort of periodically since then, they've released various albums. So Cruelty Without Beauty was released in late 2002. You know, they've released various, various things. They announced in, in sort of 2018 that they were going to do their last performance and that hasn't subsequently been the case. They performed at the O2 Arena on the 30th September 2018, and it was stated it was to be their final live UK show as a duo, but they may still perform abroad and record material together. They've recorded various bits of material, and there is a new album supposedly due this spring. Well, in fact, as we record this show, that album is due to be released any day now. So perhaps by the time this pod is released, the album Happiness Not Included will have been issued to the public. But yeah, there is new soft cell material in the offing. And their 
promise of not performing live as a duo in the UK has not been kept as they performed at the O2 Academy in Glasgow on November the 10th last year and uh, <laughs> at the Apollo in Manchester uh, two days later. So you can still <laughs> see them live. Uh, so can I just go back a little bit? Because I want to talk a little bit about things that both Mark Armand and Dave Ball did in the intervening years. Oh, we're going to have a Gene Pitney chat, aren't we? We are going to have a Gene Pitney chat. So, in 1989, Mark Allman scored his second UK number one in a duet with Gene Pitney in a cover of Gene Pitney's song, Something's Gotten Hold of My Heart. It's a belter. It is a fucking great tune. And again, showcases Mark Allman's prowess as a crooner. Mm-hmm. Dave Ball, <laughs> he went on to form The Grid with Richard Norris. Wow. They had a top 10 hit with 1994's Eurodance banjo hit, Swamp Thing. <laughs> Which is a fucking great tune. It's a great, it's a great pop tune, man. <laughs> and uh, so I just want to read a short quote from Mark Armand about the reformation of Soft Cell. So this was in 2009 in an article in tour dates that I've quoted a few minutes ago anyway. So what he said was, the whole way it fell apart was with so much chaos and bad feeling, though strangely enough, not between Dave and I. We've always had a good friendship. That was always the unsaid thing between us, that sooner or later we'd be tempted to do another album together. I always felt it was an unfinished story, and I'm glad we're able to write another chapter. Dave and I love working together and we're having fun. So we'll just see what happens. So just as a final sort of postscript to this, I've said that this was an influential album and I've not really sort of backed up my point and I'm going to. Okay. So Pet Shop Boys singer Neil Tennant recalls, when Chris Lowe and I first met in 1981, there were two electro electro pop singles we both loved. Bed Sitter by Soft Cell and Souvenir by OMD. And they went on to be in Neighbours. So, you know, who are we to argue? <laughs> Trent Reznor reflects on the album as something that transported him to an exotic foreign land. And Tim Burgess says, non-stop erotic cabaret sounds no less futuristically sleazy all these years later. That's quite some achievement. Bang on. Is right, Tim. Okay. So, yeah, best song, worst song. I'm going to go best song first. So, Say Hello, Wave Goodbye deserves an honourable mention. It's a beautiful piece of music and a really great closer. But I'm going to be Captain Obvious this week. And I hate to be Captain Obvious, particularly when it's a cover. But Tainted Love is the best song on this album. It's fucking brilliant. It Mm -hmm. takes the original and it makes something so much more out of it. It is the atypical cover version that's better than the original. It's an all-time classic. Tainted Love's the best track. My worst song, I'm not overly keen. Well, in fact, I'm far from keen on Entertain Me. It's not a good song. But I'm going to pick Bedsitter. And that's because I'm disappointed that it's not more than it is. It should be a great track, and it really, really isn't. So Bedsitter for me, worst song. Okay. How about you? So worst song is Entertain Me. I think the sixth form art school vaudevillian bollocks can do one. Yeah, okay. Uh, that's fair play. 
best song. I'm not going to go down the Captain Obvious route because, and we already know what a behemoth that song is. So I will go with Say Hello, Wave Goodbye because it's beautiful. Um, and it's a great way to end the album. And it is a wonderful piece of work. And I know obviously Tim has highlighted that. So I'll go with that as the best song off the album. Fair enough. A more than worthy choice. And I guess with that, it's time for us to get to score in these two. It is. So I begin, don't I, be, uh, with it being my selection. So, yep. Organisation by OMD. It opens really strongly. <laughs> it ends really strongly. And there's a hell of a lot going on there. And as you as you said, Andy McCluskey, for our generation, was someone who was a bit naff. It was a bit crap. And then, obviously, he created Atomic Kitten. So, you know, he had many crimes against his name. But when you look at this and you look at the dark, brooding sounds that does evoke that kind of Cold War era, like just sonically as well, it, it's an amazing piece of work. And there's, there's loads of stuff going on here. Even for the songs that I don't particularly like, there's still stuff that I enjoy in it. It's a really strong album, and I really enjoyed uh, going back through it. So for me, I'm going to come down with a seven and a half out of ten. I think it's a really strong effort. It's not perfect, but there's there's loads going on to to get your teeth into. Okay, so you've said a lot of what I was going to say. I think you're absolutely right that it evokes the era in which it was recorded. But at the same time, still sounds fresh and still sounds relevant, musically and lyrically. There's a real talent and adeptitude to the way they take the influence of Joy Division, which they cited, and we spoke about a lot last week, and translate that seamlessly into a synth-pop album. Yeah, you've got Enola Gay, which has got a great hook to it, and yet is lyrically quite educational, actually, <laughs> if you want to go to talk about that. But then there's so much more to explore. And again, this is, this is my first listen to this album when, when researching this clash. And I'm really glad I did, because I really, really like it. It isn't perfect. There's a couple of tracks on there that I'm not overly keen on. But it has a sound which is not dated. Mm-hmm. And I think you are absolutely right. I think 7.5 out of 10 is the right score to give this album. Not perfect, but really, really good. And I'm very glad that through you, I've been able to discover this album. So thank you. No problem. So that gives Organisation 15 out of 20. Yes. All right, so I guess I'm to go first then on Nonstop Erotic Cabaret. You are. So this album... It's so acerbic. It's so provocative. It's so deliberately in your face and unashamedly sexual. And that is to its immense credit. Again, think of the time you're in. You're 40 years ago. And yes, whilst many of those themes may seem tame nowadays, they certainly weren't in 1981. And so that is worthy of recognition. Musically... At times, it is somewhat limited, feels harsh. But I guess what I'm saying is it's a debut album, and you can tell at times, I think is what I mean there. 
There are two tracks that I'm not keen on. And I would say that of the two albums, this feels and sounds much more of its time than organization. And so I can't give it as high a score. As good as this is, and as strong as Mark Almond's performance on this album is, it isn't as good. And so I'm going to go six and a half for non-stop erotic cabaret. What about you? So there are some incredibly high moments on this album. It opens really well. I think the last track is is wonderful. I think the way it evokes a a space, a time, a feeling like this is an album that you're never comfortable with. It's not a Pat Boone album. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it's not. It's not Daniel O'Donnell one for the um, one for the nuns. No, like this is setting you on a journey to the dark underbelly of the, of the city, and Mark Almond is going to make you see things you can never unsee. <laughs> his his vocal performance throughout is absolutely wonderful. He is an amazing vocal talent, and it comes through throughout this. I, I would say, and an, sorry to interrupt. We don't normally do this because it's your review. Vocal talent and lyricist, yes. I would say. Yes, I was about to come on to that. Oh, I apologise. So, yeah, is lyrically brilliant. And because of that talent, you are brought kicking and screaming. Or, <laughs> like, depending on your viewpoint, like, you are skipping along with him into the dark areas that he wants to take you. It's not a perfect album. I think musically there are elements about it that I think don't work or don't enhance what Mark Holman's doing. I think certainly on Entertain Me, I like it really, really grated elements of that song. But there's a load going on and I managed to take what is a an absolute banger and make it better, which, you know, mm-hmm. fair play to him. So... It's not as good as the OMD album, but it's a really strong album. So I'm coming down with a 7 out of 10. Okay, fair enough. So that gives Nonstop Erotic Cabaret 13 and a half. So it's it's a victory and a clear victory for OMD, for organisation. Yeah, I think it just perhaps comes down to... I think it's the overall package, really. Yeah, absolutely. As I said, I... I think both albums actually evoke the time and the place and the themes that they are about. I just think that organisation does it in a way which has greater longevity, mm-hmm. I guess. Because it, the, th- the thing about non-stop erotic cabaret, um, whilst there are still elements about it that are shocking, is that looking at it now... It's certainly not as scandalous as it would have been at the time. No, indeed. Although that was that didn't really necessarily come into my thinking, and I don't I don't think it came into yours. You're right. As you said, I feel harsh on Andy Ball, but it's just you can tell it's a debut album. As I said when I did my review, OM, OMD were one album down and had and had working with a producer by this time who was able to mould that sound, mm-hmm. if you like. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, Soft Cell went from basically about to be dropped to 
Yeah, go ahead. Record an album. Fuck off to New York. Take a load of E and record an album. <laughs> uh, okay, so congratulations to Andy McCluskey and to Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. You have won this album clash, the final clash for now in our electro season. So uh, our hats off to you guys. Yeah, well done. So Kev, where are we going next? What is my choice? It is your choice, but the theme that we're going to go with for a short while is we've decided to do a little bit on film soundtracks. We have indeed. So it is certainly at the time of recording uh, about to be Oscars season in 2022. So yeah, we figured never one to shy away from hitching our wagon to the cultural zeitgeist <laughs> we would do a couple of clashes on uh, yeah album clash goes to the movies basically mm-hmm. and it's my choice to start things off and so i'm not going to stray too far from what we normally do i'm going to go with two soundtrack albums that consist of popular music pop songs whatever you want to say And they are two soundtracks from films by directors, both of whom place a lot of reliance in their films on the soundtrack. So, to start off on next week's show, I am going to take us through the soundtrack to Quentin Tarantino's 1994 classic, Pulp Fiction. And Kev, would you like to hazard a guess at what you're going to be taking us through the week after that? Oh, okay. I'm going to have a guess. Uh, it's going to be Edgar Wright. No, it is not going to be Edgar Wright. Okay, then it's going to be James Gunn. No, it's not James Gunn either. Ooh. It's Danny Boyle. Okay. And you are going to be taking us through the soundtrack to Danny Boyle's Train Spotting. Oh, it's a good one. So. Two absolute classic film soundtracks, both of which make heavy use of pop music from different eras, it must be said, but both were very much uh, must-have soundtrack albums in the era that Kev and I were experiencing our musical uh, awakening, so to speak. So yeah, there we go. In our first album clash goes to the movies clash, it's going to be Quentin Tarantino versus Danny Boyle, Pulp Fiction versus train spotting lovely stuff mm, indeed before then however kev how might people keep in touch with the show so over the past couple of years various windbags on twitter have become experts on well self-proclaimed experts on pandemics on vaccines on epidemiology <laughs> now they can add to their list of expertise by discussing the intricacies of East European politics and history. (laughs) Indeed. Um, Whilst uh, searching such um, ill-informed nonsense opinions, you may also come across our Twitter, at Clash Album. If you're a fan of uh, carefully curated quality content, then you can go to our Insta, at Clash Album, if you want to sign us up for various, well, SM sites, if you're influenced by uh, the themes expressed in Nonstop Erotic Cabaret, <laughs> you can sign us up via our email at clashalbum at gmail.com or send us an email. Indeed. If you'd like to be my sex dwarf, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very good. Uh, yeah. Keep in touch, guys. As we always say, let us know what you think. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you don't like. 
Leave ratings, leave reviews, click that all-important subscribe button, tell your friends about the show. As we've said, the first rule of Album Clash is you do talk about Album Clash. That's another movie tie-in. There you go. <laughs> well, and I was about to say, um, Bob is no longer with us. Indeed. Robert Paulson has... Anyway. At some point, right, just... just... <laughs> Are we are we going to do the work of uh, oh, what's his name Jim Stein? Jim Steinman? No, 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 we're not, no, no, no. I'm going to put him down for the clash. No, nope. or you can do if you want, but <laughs> no, we should. Jim Steinman is an incredibly influential artist. So yeah, who knows? Bonnie Tyler versus Meatloaf might be a clash coming to you. <laughs> My God, man. <laughs> you suggested it mate <laughs> oh right anyway I want to go I'm tired it's bedtime <laughs> um, thank you for listening guys just a reminder the start of our album clash goes to the movie season next week I will be taking us through the soundtrack to Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction and in two weeks time Kev I will be taking us through the soundtrack to Danny Boyle's Train Spotting. There you go. So we will see you next week, guys. Until then, however, I was once known as Timothy. And I am the artist formerly known as Kev. Take care, guys. We'll see you soon. Ta-da. Ta-da. Take care. Bye.